from John 20, 19 through 31, the Common English Bible. It was the first day of the week. That evening, while the disciples were behind closed doors because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities, Jesus came and stood among them. He said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands in his side. When the disciples, when the, when the disciples saw the Lord, they were filled with joy. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they aren't forgiven. Jesus appears to Thomas and the disciples. Thomas, the one called Didymus, meaning twin, one of the twelve, wasn't with the disciples when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he replied, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger in the wounds left by the nails, and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. After eight days, his disciples were again in a house, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus entered and stood among them. He said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into my side. No more disbelief, believe. Thomas responded to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Jesus replied, do you believe because you see me? Happier are those that don't see and yet believe. Then Jesus did many miraculous signs in his disciples' presence, signs that aren't recorded in the scroll. But these things are written so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's Son, and that believing you will have life in his name. Good morning, Mago. Uh, my name is Brian. I work with the formation team and the teaching team here at our church. It's my pleasure today to introduce our speaker. So one of the things that we value at Imago is hearing a wide variety of voices and perspectives. And so you'll see there's a lot of different people that will be speaking up here. So today it's a little different for the people here in the room. You get to experience what the people at home who watch on their computers every week feel like because our speaker is going to be joining us um, by a video from California. So Matt Nightingale, um, some of you may have heard of him before or seen him on Twitter um, or seen his TED talk. There's lots of places you might have encountered him. He does a lot of work in spaces between communities that don't always get along. So for a lot of his story, he has worked with the queer community and the Christian community to find common ground and to help them understand each other and talk to each other. And so that is a, a filter for him. It's a basis for his story. But the work is hard no matter what the differences are. And all of us encounter people that we love, that we care about, that just look at things very differently than we do. They just see things very opposite and we feel like we just can't speak to them. And sometimes it's hard to know, how do we have those conversations? So Matt um, has had a lot of practice with that. He's been enough in the public figure that people love to come at him and remind him of all these verses that, you know, he's never read in the Bible before, but they feel like if they show him those verses, it will all become clear. Um, and again, he handles those things with such grace and kindness and lovingness. That's something that, um, that we really value at Imago. So that's why we wanted to have him here. So he's a friend of mine. He's my spiritual director. So I'm, that's my only name I'm going to drop today. There you go. Um, <laughs> but I, I get to see him and encounter him a lot. And what you'll see up here is the genuine man. He is very much this way in all the spaces where people interact with him. So again, he's going to share today um, about a lot of those things. But again, he's a pastor um, at a church in California. So that's where he's also um, today. 
And uh, he has a nonprofit that he heads that helps um, manage these conversations. There's a lot of places to find him. So we've had all his contact information up on our Facebook page, and, and the website will have those things up. So if you want to learn more about him, um, there's lots of resources to help you do that. But um, again, so it's a little different having a floating face up there on the screen today. But um, Matt has some really good things to share, so we're glad that we can be together and hear his words today. Two things that relate to each other. First of all, how to be a good ally to LGBTQ plus people. And perhaps more importantly, why that's so important. And I know your church has already talked a lot about this and is already doing a really good job in this area. So I'm not going to spend too much time there. What I'm really interested in exploring today is something that affects all of us all the time when it comes to matters like inclusion how to have difficult conversations with people who disagree with us. Let me share a little bit of my story as I begin. I don't incorporate my personal life into every message, but in this case, I think it's important for you to know where I'm coming from because my life is all about LGBTQ inclusion and having difficult conversations with people who disagree with me. I was raised not too far from you, near South Bend, Indiana, in a fundamentalist Christian family. And I was a devout, earnest kid. We were a James Dobson, focus on the family, Jerry Falwell, moral majority, Ronald Reagan, Christian radio, Christian school, church three times a week, vacation Bible school every summer, witness to the neighbors kind of family. And I loved it. My family was warm and loving and my school and church were really all I knew. I loved Jesus and I wanted nothing more than to please God and to serve God with my whole life. So it was challenging and confusing, to say the least, when I realized around the age of 10 that I was gay. I really had no framework for this, no healthy examples of gay people, and certainly not of gay Christian people. Throughout my junior high and high school years in the 1980s, the only examples of queer people that I encountered were flaming queens on sitcoms, dying AIDS patients or effeminate or gender non-conforming entertainers like Liberace or Boy George. None of these things described me, a faithful kid from a Christian family. So I made a vow to keep my secret to the grave and to do everything I could to live a faithful Christian life. I was a leader in my youth group and school, and I enrolled in Christian college to go into some kind of ministry. Of course, my gay orientation never went away, no matter how much I prayed, fasted, memorized scripture, confessed. But still, I tried to live in the way I thought I was expected to, by my family, my community, and my God. And so, at the ripe old age of 21, I got married to a wonderful Christian woman. We had four kids together and a 23-year marriage. I was an evangelical worship pastor for nearly 20 of those years. In 2002, 20 years ago now, after eight years of marriage, I came out to my wife and to my pastoral staff friends. At the time, I was seeking healing and deliverance. I spent many years in conversion therapy groups, 12-step groups, individual and couples counseling on and on. After that initial confession, my wife and I stayed together 15 more years until I came out publicly in 2016, ending my marriage, surrendering my ministry credentials in my denomination and resigning from my local church job. In the six years since my very public coming out, I've been through a lot. It was chaotic and difficult. I had to basically start over from scratch. 
but thanks be to God, slowly but surely I have found new life. Our Christian faith has always been about resurrection. And I am so grateful for my life on this side of the closet door. Opportunities that I never could have imagined began to come my way. My former wife and I were invited to give a TEDx talk about our story. I was given a full scholarship to a spiritual director training program. I found meaningful ministry work, first as the music minister at MCC San Francisco, the historically gay church that's been marrying and ordaining queer people since 1968, and then as the worship leader at my church, The Quest, a progressive American Baptist church in Marin County. I became co-pastor of The Quest, along with my best friend of 22 years, Tony Gapistone, in 2019, and that has been an incredible gift. I work with an organization called The Christian Closet, doing individual spiritual direction and running support groups for gay men married to women. And just this last summer, I launched my own nonprofit organization called Common Sanctuary. We exist to foster healthy conversations at the intersection of faith and sexuality. Throughout all of this change and growth, I've been fortunate to maintain a loving relationship with my four kids. And in July of 2020, in the middle of a global pandemic, I found love with a wonderful Christian man from Mexico named Alejandro on Facebook of all places. I'm very grateful. So how to be a good ally to LGBTQ plus people. As I mentioned before, I think your church is already doing a great job at this, but it's always good to be reminded. I would say it's important to be educated, to understand our experiences as queer people, and to remember your privilege as cisgender or heterosexual people. I think it's important to think about being an ally as more a verb than a noun. What are you doing to make the world a more inclusive, safe place for LGBTQ plus people? If you're able to give money or donate time to queer organizations, that can be incredibly helpful. And if you can be public in your allyship, that's always encouraging. If you hear someone speaking negatively about us, if you hear someone using gay as a slur uh, or telling an offensive joke, speak out. We need all the allies we can get, and every single rainbow flag or mama bear on Facebook is one step closer to a more just and equitable world. And I want to take this one step further. I recently got some feedback about my ministry from someone who used to go to my church. He basically said, I don't want to hear that Matt's gay every Sunday. I'll admit it, that stung a little bit. But I think it's important to actually engage the accusation, because it's not the first time I've heard this critique. In fact, I suspect that even solid allies might think to themselves sometimes, okay, okay, look, I'm fine with gay people, but why do we have to hear about it all the time? I mean, I don't announce that I'm straight every time I walk into a room. This is a valid question, and I think it deserves a thoughtful answer. It's true. At The Quest, we often state explicitly that we are affirming of queer people, and it's certainly no secret that I'm gay. As I honestly think back over my Sundays, there are many weeks when I lead without any reference at all to my sexuality. But here's the thing. Sometimes I think I should talk about it more than I actually do. Did you know that LGBTQ plus teenagers are three times more likely to complete suicide than their straight counterparts? that LGBTQ plus teenagers are twice as likely to be physically assaulted. Did you know that 40% of homeless youth are queer? 
that 64% of LGBTQ plus teenagers don't feel safe at school? Did you know that in 73 countries, homosexuality is still considered a crime? In some places, punishable by death? I know I talk a lot about being gay, but here's a question for my straight friends to consider. How often do you announce your heterosexuality? Probably more than you realize. Do you ever talk about your spouse on Facebook or Instagram? Have you ever held your spouse's hand or given a quick peck on the cheek in public? Do you and your spouse and children ever walk into church and sit together? Do you ever talk about dating or married life with family or friends? Have you ever celebrated an anniversary publicly? Do you have a photo of your significant other sitting on your desk at work? These are just a few of the million ways that heteronormativity pervades our world. And while it is true that there are a lot more straight people than queer people, that doesn't mean that our relationships and experiences are any less normal than yours are. But from the time we are born, we are expected to be straight. Boys are little lady killers. We are asked from the time we're in third grade about our girlfriends. When we buy flowers, sweet checkout ladies say things like, Ooh, good job, she'll love those. We hear songs and watch TV shows and buy cards and read books and see music videos about heterosexual love. We hear our pastors talk about their smoking hot wives. We hear youth group lectures about sexual purity from youth leaders who cannot even imagine that some of us are not tempted by short skirts and low-cut blouses. And even gay theater kids like I was are still kissing girls up on that stage because again and again and again, the dominant story in our culture is a heteronormative one. So when LGBTQ plus people come out, it's because we are finally choosing to be honest, to confront the false heteronormative story that has been told about us our entire lives. We have to come out in order to live authentically. Study after study has shown that representation matters. When LGBTQ plus people see ourselves represented on screen, in print, in business, in politics, or for that matter, in a pulpit, we realize that we are not alone. We see that we too have hope and a future. We see that it really does get better. So visibility matters. Queer representation matters. And this is why it's so very important to continue to say week after week, to say explicitly that our churches are not only welcoming, but affirming of LGBTQ plus identities and relationships. Every Sunday morning for several years now, I've been tweeting a single sentence that seems to really resonate with a lot of people. You don't have to worship where you're not wanted. I am so grateful that churches like The Quest and Imago Dei exist, and I pray that our tribe increases. Now let's move on to this second idea, how to have hard conversations with people who disagree with us. As you might imagine, I've had some experience with this over the last six years, and I'd like to share how I think about this, just some of my experience, and invite you to consider joining me. If you have your Bibles this morning, please turn with me to Romans chapter 12. I'll be reading from the New International Version, and before I do, let me just say that this is more an invitation than an expectation. The way I understand the Bible these days is so different than I did in my evangelical days. I love the way Pete Enns talks about it in his amazing book, How the Bible Actually Works. 
I'm taking my church through it in a book study right now, and I highly recommend it. He says that when we look at the Bible as an instruction manual and expect it to tell us exactly what God's will is for our individual lives, we are bound to be disappointed. It simply was never intended to work that way. Rather, the Bible from beginning to end shows us how to live a life of wisdom. As we follow Jesus, who, by the way, is called the wisdom of God by Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.24, we are invited to grow more and more in step with the Spirit. We find that we can more and more readily apply the many diverse teachings to be found in the pages of Scripture to our own wildly diverse and individual lives. In fact, I would argue that it is as important to know our own selves as it is to know the words of Scripture. As we know who we are, and as we grow in wisdom and in relationship to the divine, we grow in health and wellness and peace and godliness. So let's read these words from Romans and consider our own lives and our own context in 2022. How might these ancient words encourage and challenge us this morning? How might we think about these words specifically when it comes to these kinds of difficult conversations? I'm just going to share what comes up for me. Take whatever is helpful in your own context and filter out what's not. Verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, siblings, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. He actually said brothers and sisters, but living 2,000 years ago, he didn't understand that there are many people who live outside the male-female binary. So I just give him the benefit of the doubt and update his language for him. And as for the living sacrifice part, I actually love it. For me, it just means that I want my life to be of service to God that I want my life to be used for God's purposes, which, as I understand them, are for the good of all people. Justice, equality, inclusion, love, kindness. I can understand being put off by the sacrifice language, like God wants us to be slaves to him. But when I think about God's mission in the world, I always go back to Luke chapter 4, when Jesus basically spells out his mission by reading from the prophet Isaiah to proclaim good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release the prisoners from darkness, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Sounds good to me. Continuing on, verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and to prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Again, I don't want anyone to get tripped up on what God's will is. It's not ever about what God's will is for your individual life. God's will is the well-being, the peace of all people. But look at that first part. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. I want to spend just a minute here because I think it's really relevant. If you want to see the pattern of this world, spend one hour on Facebook or Twitter. Yikes. It can be really ugly out there. As an outspoken gay Christian pastor, I very often find myself in conversations with my theological or political other. And those conversations go just about as well as you are imagining right now. I suspect many of you feel like I do much of the time. Kind of hopeless. 
I remember watching the documentary, The Social Dilemma on Netflix. We are such a divided nation. And social media has made us even more hopelessly divided. Our feeds have been curated by artificial intelligence to the point where we cannot even imagine believing what our political and theological other believes. We don't see the same posts. We don't read the same news. We don't see the same video clips. We don't have the same ads in our feed. It's no wonder that we look out over the same landscape and see two completely different worlds. It's no wonder that someone in Indiana can genuinely believe that San Francisco is a war zone while I'm enjoying a picnic in Golden Gate Park with my kids. This is not an exaggeration. And no matter what side you're on, it says something about the pattern of this world that there are sides at all. We human beings, perhaps especially these days, seem to love our sides. Right versus left. Conservative versus liberal or progressive. Affirming versus non-affirming. Trump versus Biden. Democrat versus Republican. Reasonable versus insane. Good versus evil. Us versus them. This is how most debate is framed these days. Our reasonable, thoughtful perspective versus the evil insanity on the other side. I'll confess to seeing it that way much of the time, if I'm honest. So do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Great. Sounds good. How do we do that? Verse 3, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. This verse is really powerful for me personally. This is one of the main ways I try to stay grounded, how I try to live publicly and privately, how I try to live as a pastor and how I try to lead my nonprofit. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. For me, I try to remember where I've come from. I try to remember that when I was 18 years old, I was listening to a lot of Rush Limbaugh and calling myself a ditto head. I was reading John Piper books and uh, really convinced of that perspective. I try to remember that when I was 32 years old, I was telling people that I was a straight man who was uh, who struggled with same-sex attraction. I made a pilgrimage to meet Frank Worthen, the founder of the first significant ex-gay organization that went on to become Exodus International. He and I, over lunch, talked about my dreams of carrying on his legacy traveling the world with my wife and sharing our story of how God had freed me from my homosexuality and restored our marriage and how God could free them too. I, that's what I wanted. I was going to be an ex-gay celebrity. And so when I look at the people who I occasionally battle on Twitter, the Beckett Cooks and the Jackie Hill Perrys and the Ann Polks and the Stephen Blacks of this world, the phrase there, but for the grace of God go I, has some special significance. And when I look at the shiny, happy, youthful faces of Bethel Church's Changed campaign, I wonder where they will be in 20 years. It's pretty sobering. Paul's words here, think of yourself with sober judgment, feel spot on. Where might they apply in your life? 
when you think about these kinds of conversations with your other. Verse 4, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to to lead, then do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. There's so much wisdom here. We could talk all day. I think I want to point out again that there's that, that each of us is a unique individual with our own history, strengths, weaknesses, personality, trauma, passions, calling. When I first came out and started down this path of public ministry and advocacy, I found pretty quickly that my words and my work seemed to be effective at this intersection of faith and sexuality. I was able to help queer people explore their spiritual lives. And I was able to help Christians, especially those from a more conservative background, grow in their understanding and acceptance of LGBTQ identities and relationships. And my public ministry, even on social media, was generally patient and kind in tone. I did my best to extend the benefit of the doubt, to assume best intentions, and never to resort to name calling or anything like that. And all of this seemed to work for me. Um, To be honest, I felt really called to it, and it came really naturally for me. I enjoyed it, and I spent a lot of time on it, and I found it to be really effective. And in those early years, I also found myself getting really judgmental and somewhat arrogant. I saw the good fruit in my approach, and I concluded that I was doing it right. And I expected everyone else to do it like me. Uh, I looked down on those who were more strident or angry in their approach to activism, and sometimes I even tried to call them out on it, to challenge them to be more like me. It's embarrassing, honestly, to look back on those days. But thank God we are all given grace to grow and learn. Paul says we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. I realize now that this approach works for me, And comes naturally to me because of my history, because of my temperament, my personality. It's not because I'm such a good person, because I'm doing it right. It's because I am who I am. How are you created? How might your unique design be used by God in these kinds of difficult conversations with your political or theological other? I would love to go through this passage (laughs) verse by verse, but of course we have limited time. So let's jump down to verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. This short verse illustrates two principles that I try to live by in my life and work. First of all, I try to be unfailingly kind. Sometimes I even joke, kindness is the brand. In my experience, kindness in the face of cruelty tends to disarm the aggressor. It catches them off guard and sometimes even allows for a moment of human connection, of real communication. And the second principle is key. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. 
For me, this is not about living up to everyone's expectations. That's impossible. For me, when I apply this to these kinds of conversations, I am always mindful of the reality that even when I'm talking to a hateful person who is not likely to ever be won over to my perspective, it's still worth it to be kind, still worth it to extend the benefit of the doubt, to assume best interest. And I don't necessarily do this for the person with whom I'm talking. I do it for the people who are watching and listening in, who may never even comment, who may never even alert me to their presence. I can't tell you the number of times that I've gotten DMs from people who have said things like, I never comment myself, but I've been following you for a long time and I see the way you interact with people. You have really made a difference in the way I see things. You've helped me understand. I see the fruit of the spirit in the way you interact with people. Again and again and again, I am reminded that people are watching and the way I interact with people really matters. There are times when I interact harshly or, or in an ugly way, but sometimes I even go back and delete those things. I don't want that to be the way that I, that I represent Christ. I, I, I have learned that the way I interact really does matter. The last verse I'll comment on today is verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. There's a lot of wiggle room in that verse. (laughs) If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. The reality is sometimes it doesn't depend on us. Sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes people have prejudged us and nothing we say or do will convince them otherwise. Sometimes people are more committed to their understanding of reality, to their theological or political systems than they are to their relationships or to the evidence that is presented to them. By God's design, I am an extrovert, ENFP, Enneagram 7, external processor. Everything I do is out loud and involves other people. I often don't even know what I'm thinking about something until I hear myself talking about it with someone. I had already been living my life out loud on social media for years, so when I came out, I just kept doing that. I had worked hard for years to cultivate relationships, and I wanted to have the opportunity to influence people for good, to prove that I could be openly gay and still live a faithful Christian life. I went so far as to resign my ministry credentials and my church job. I I didn't make them fire me. Like I wanted to make this easy on everyone so that I could stay in relationships, so that I could prove to them that I could be a good Christian gay. (laughs) My dear friend and mentor, Annie Steinberg-Behrman, the senior pastor of MCC San Francisco, had a a really up-close and personal uh, view to my life during this season. And she saw how desperately I was looking for affirmation from everyone around me. I was constantly texting people, tweeting, posting on Facebook, constantly seeking external validation. I didn't see it this way, but of course she was right. She told me back then in so many different ways that at the end of the day, it wouldn't matter what other people thought. The only relationship that truly mattered was the relationship between me and God. She said, I had to be at peace with myself and at peace with God and let go of the rest. And over time, I started to see that with 
many of the people in my life, it didn't matter what happened to me. It didn't matter what the fruit of my life looked like. Even though I really want my life to bear witness to the reality that I can be a happy, healthy Christian gay man, (laughs) they are more committed to their belief that I can't. And they'll interpret the circumstances of my life accordingly. If my life is difficult or sad or tragic in some way, they'll say that's God's judgment. See? If my life is happy or healthy, they'll say I'm deceived and that someday I'll realize the error of my ways. Six weeks ago, I had a stroke. It just so happened that my long-distance boyfriend Alejandro had gotten into town the night before and was able to get me to the ER. He literally saved my life. So, does queer love save lives? I would say yes. Clear evidence, right? But of course, they would say no. God is giving this reprobate sinner one final chance to repent. It all depends on your commitment to your worldview, doesn't it? To determine what you believe and how you interpret that. I have found that with some of these people, I simply can't have a conversation that is productive or healthy. And as difficult as it is, sometimes I have to step away from these relationships. There's a short passage in Proverbs that illustrates this conundrum and the way God invites us to consider our unique life situations with wisdom. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. At first glance, it seems like a massive contradiction. Are we supposed to answer a fool or not? And if I had encountered these verses 20 years ago, I would have been stumped. But now I see the invitation to wisdom. I really believe that God is inviting us to evaluate the situation. Should we have the conversation or not? What is our relationship with this person? What is our temperament, history, and calling? Who's watching? What is at stake? What is my mental state right now? Am I secure and able to have this conversation? Is it wise for me right now to have this conversation? Or is it wiser for me to walk away? As we wrap up this morning, I hope these words are helpful or at the very least thought-provoking. I hope you are encouraged to remember that God loves us and walks with us as the unique individuals that we are. And that God invites us to bring our whole selves to him and into the world for our good and for the good of others. Let's pray. God, thank you for your presence with us this morning. Thank you for your invitation to read these wise ancient words and to consider their meaning for our lives and our context. May we continue to feel your loving presence as we go from here into whatever is next. In the strong name of Jesus, the wisdom of God, we pray. Amen.